You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. There's a a lesser-known character from the uh, history of the English Reformation. Uh, Often people talk about Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer, uh, and some others, uh, but the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago in England, uh, an early uh, reformer who really, the other reformers, owe their faith to him is a guy named Thomas Bilney, who was uh, nicknamed Little Bilney, apparently because he was um, sort of short. Um, and if you ever listen to the, the radio program or podcast called The White Horse Inn, Thomas Bilney was the guy who, who really gathered the group of people at the White Horse Tavern that they called Little Germany, a discussion group. But Bilney, uh, of course, you know, was a, was a, uh, a medieval, uh, person, and, uh, he came to conversion, uh, in 1519. This is just two years after Martin Luther na- nailing his 95 theses, uh, to the church door in Germany. And he came to conversion by reading these words from 1 Timothy. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Um, this is almost like the, um, if you've heard the, the John Wesley conversion story of where he says, my heart was strangely warmed. Bilney says something quite similar in, in reflecting on the time when he uh, read and really sort of God opened his ears and eyes to understand this uh, verse from 1 Timothy. He says, immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb, wherein I learned that all my labors, my fasting and watching, all the redemption of masses and pardons, being done without truth in Christ, who alone saveth his people from their sins, these, I say, I learned to be nothing else, but even, as St. Augustine saith, a hasty and swift running out, of the right way. And he went on, but I just want to say before I go on to say the next thing, how great is that phrase that this is a, a marvelous comfort, something like First uh, Timothy uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, uh, a marvelous comfort. And he went on to influence, as I said, uh, many people and perhaps even brought Thomas Cranmer, who we better know as the uh, the sort of uh, the, the chief architect, as we say, of our Book of Common Prayer, the, the worship service, the liturgy that we use tonight is influenced by the work of Cranmer and therefore Thomas Bilney. Uh, and Cranmer was so influenced by Bilney that he put that verse from 1 Timothy in his list of what we call the comfortable words that we read every Sunday when we celebrate communion. After we have our confession, uh, and you hear the minister's announcement of God's forgiveness of sins, we are reassured with what we call the comfortable words. Remember, Bilney said something like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 is a marvelous comfort. And that's where uh, Cranmer got this idea to write these, th- the, to put these verses in. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then this one again, this saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And finally, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And the way we kind of shape our uh, worship service, it has an intentional sort of emotional arc. Cranmer was aware of this when he put it together, and, and we continue to think about what's going on emotionally, not to manipulate all of you, but as, as Zach says, uh, to shepherd people, uh, to pastor them through the service uh, emotionally. Uh, and it has a sort of arc uh, to it of, uh, of, uh, of emotion. And we come to the comfortable words afterwards. Uh, something happens, of course, but... Uh, as Zach says in his book, the theologian Zach Hicks and the worship pastor says, the, the, the arc you can describe like this, a three-part, the glory of God, the gravity of sin, and the grandeur of grace. And so you're confronted in our worship service with the, uh, the glory of God, his majesty, but you're also confronted with your own gravity of sin, the depths of woe that is humanity, but it doesn't end there because that would be nihilistic. And instead, we are given a marvelous comfort, grandeur of grace and these comfortable words and elsewhere. Uh, and after the comfortable words uh, with the grace overflowing, uh, that's why we say, lift up your hearts, lift up your hearts. After you've heard all of this, we lift them up to the Lord. And after taking communion in our post-communion uh, prayer, we say this, Now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. And these are responses to the acknowledgement of the, the sheer majesty of God, the total depravity of humankind, and yet the marvelous comfort of the gospel. Uh, the response was something like, lift up your hearts and send us out now to do the work you have given us to do. That's the, the emotional arc. It kind of kind of goes like this, as it were. Um, we don't start low, but we, we start a little high, go low, and then take you, lift off into outer space, right, in terms of the grace. Well, there's an emotional arc in Romans. In uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, there's a similar emotional arc uh, especially in chapters 1 through 11. Um, hear this about the glory of God in the very beginning, chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, uh, God is the God of everyone. He's not just some local deity. Uh, he is the God of everyone, to Jew and to Gentile, uh, and he alone is righteous. But what about the gravity of sin? You know, early in my sort of walk of faith, when starting to come to church, there was, I went to this one church and I went out to lunch with a guy afterwards and I was still not getting this stuff. And uh, he, he, he probably was probably the sort of what we call the Romans road that he was walking me through. And I didn't realize at the time, but I remember he was reading Eugene Peterson's message translation of the Bible. And he read these, uh, these verses uh, cite, uh, where Paul cites a series of the Psalms uh, to help me to understand the, uh, the gravity of my sin. And, and it really struck me. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. 
not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, phew. Um, <laughs> remember, we don't leave you there. And neither does Paul, right? I mean, uh, this is early on in Romans. Uh, but we, uh, we hear throughout the first um, 11 chapters of, uh, of Romans, Paul giving us a vision of, of God's marvelous comfort of the gospel, these comfortable words, other comfortable words. I've put together a handout of, of verses um, from the first 11 chapters of Romans and put them out on the table in Clingman Commons. Uh, that I think are, are, are quite comfortable. I'm not going to read them all to you, but just hear these. This is what's happening in Romans chapter 11. We've, we've, we've had the, the, um, the, the glory of God and the gravity of sin and now the grandeur of grace. Hear these comfortable words. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If, any, uh, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, If we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is the end of law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So that's all that's happened up to this point in Romans. Now what? You know, as, as Doug pointed out last week, uh, Romans would have ended quite well at the end of chapter 11, and yet there are still a few more chapters. You know, now what, what more is there to say? Uh, remember that uh, after we go through the emotional journey and hear the comfortable words in our liturgy, we lift up our hearts and ask the Father to send us out to do the work that he has given us to do. And Paul explains something quite similar in Romans. Chapter 12 similarly begins, Therefore, therefore all this other stuff that I've been talking to you about in uh, Romans chapter 1 through 11, therefore this, now hear this. If it's really sunk in. And Doug last week spoke to us about Paul's appeal to us to live as living sacrifices for God's service. Service that requires renewed minds and thus a changed life. In chapter 12, isn't the first time Paul talks about these things. There are sort of uh, little bits here and there uh, throughout, like our liturgy. Romans is more nuanced than the sort of broad strokes that I'm painting, but at least this is that the, the, these are the broad strokes, though. And chapters 12 through uh, 16 are a sort of uh, exhortation, or as uh, the fancy theological uh, 
uh, word for it is parenesis, which basically is the same sort of etymology as uh, parentheses, parenthetical. This is this is Paul's BTW, right? Hashtag. By the way, uh, if all this uh, and it's really sunk in these comfortable words, this is how you could lift up your hearts. This is how God sent us out into the world to do the work He has given us to do. These are the fruits of that marvelous comfort. And now in our uh, passage today, we see a, a very simple and specific uh, list of the fruits of that comfort of the gospel. And it's broken down into two different sections, okay? And uh, if you want to, you can follow along in your bulletin, uh, or you can take a look at the Pew Bible, uh, page 948, or if you have a Bible, just take a look at, at, at that, uh, this bit in uh, Romans chapter 12. First, so I said there are two kind of chunks here. First, he talks about hospitality uh, in the family of God. So this is uh, stuff that we can do among fellow Christians. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. So if that's the first bit, uh, is uh, sort of love and hospitality with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The second bit is our sort of admonitions about humbly blessing our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Um, at the, the Advent, uh, before we went through this uh, visioning process more recently in the past year or so, we had an articulation of the fruits of our theology. And we still have it up on our website because we think it still holds true. Even though we've articulated, re-articulated our vision, we've kept these, uh, these fruits of our theology for us to always kind of bear in mind. And, and one of them is a heart for those who've been burned by the church. There are four hearts. And one of the four hearts is that the Advent has a heart for those who've been burned by the church. And I want to say that the, the people who've been, when I say burned, I mean um, they've been injured, right, by the, by the church and somehow, and many people have been. Um, and this is often a result of sort of heavy-handed moralism. And maybe you've experienced this before. Uh, and I find that it's related to, to just these types of passages in the Bible and the way that we deal with them. There's a way of talking about them uh, that uh, that is gracious, the way that I hope to talk to you about it tonight. I ho- really hope to talk to you about this stuff tonight and you don't feel burned by it, okay? That you don't... And maybe you have PTSD from... And there's total seriousness from past church experiences. Uh, lend me some grace and mercy in what I'm talking about and don't project on me uh, what, what has burned you in the past. 
or maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, just know that this is true, that, that often we can come to passages like this and how we treat them is kind of delicate because they've been articulated in the wrong way. Often it's cart before the horse thinking, that the, the cart of the morality is put before the horse of the gospel. And you just can't have that. You, you, you can't do that. What happens when the cart's before the horse? The, the horse runs into it and it's a disaster. And you get nowhere. The horse has to be before the cart. And that's the gospel. Basically, good work must flow out of the converted heart. It absolutely has to. Otherwise, it's not good work. And I confess, I make a confession to you, that I used to get really nervous as soon as we started um, instructing Christians in the Christian life because of my own bad experiences with this. And be careful. Be careful when something uh, seems wrong to you, and I'm speaking from my own experience with something like this, of reacting to the 180 degrees the opposite direction, because there's usually fault there as well. Um, and so now I realize that I was wrong for, for quite a while of, of avoiding passages like this. Paul even says in Romans chapter 4 and 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Um, uh, So of course, of course, these are bits of the scriptures that should not be avoided. Um, there was a, a church, uh, and you see this often in the Episcopal Church or in mainline churches, they'll have a service, a lot like the 5 o'clock, and it's, it's called Come As You Are. Uh, Come As You Are service. Have you seen this before? I don't think you see this in evangelicalism. You usually see it like in Episcopal churches at 5 o'clock on a Sunday. Uh, and they call it the con. There was one in Bethesda, Maryland, where I used to live, at another church, not the one I went to, another Episcopal church, and it was called the Come As You Are service. Meaning what? That, you know, you can, you could sort of wear, you could wear your, your board shorts or whatever, and nobody would care. Um, just, just come. But, but come as you are, does that mean stay as you are? You know, come as you are, does that mean stay as you are? By no means, Paul would say, just as he says, in Romans chapter 5. Rather, as Mark Ginolette, who often comes here and preaches, he did a forum for us several months ago, and someone asked a question about, like, what, is, what does all this stuff matter? And Mark said, you know, if, if the gospel, the, this marvelous comfort, this marvelous comfort of the gospel is true, if all these things are true, it changes everything. It, 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 it impacts everything in my life. It, it, it implicates everything if the marvelous comfort of the gospel is true. And not only that, Scripture shows us it's, it's normal to instruct, as the end of uh, most epistles kind of sort of do. But all this exhortation or instruction, or as I said, paradesis, the parenthetical, by the way, uh, it, it has to follow uh, the converted heart. Without a converted heart, our best works are filthy rags. And a true faith, as uh, our, uh, our uh, 39 Articles of Religion says, is a lively faith. It's alive. A true faith is alive. It works, of course. It's alive, and therefore it bears fruit. And Romans 12 works because of the gospel. Uh, it has to come after that first 11 chapters. So let me talk about love and hospitality. Remember, there are two sort of lists here in chapter 12. What about the love and hospitality bit? What does love and hospitality in the family of God look like? And why is it such a big deal? 
love might sound easy, especially if you think of love in a sort of sentimental hallmark card sort of way, but it's not because love actually means sacrifice. And hospitality might sound natural, uh, but uh, have, you know, have you had people over for dinner lately? It's difficult. You know what I mean? Hospitality is actually quite a difficult thing to do. And I assure you, most of us are terrible at it. Most of us are inhospitable and unloving. It's just sort of our default settings. We might put on a smile, you know, but deep down, uh, it's, our hearts are often doing quite the opposite. And therefore, we require models. Uh, and uh, if it's not coming from a converted heart, uh, what we think is love and hospitality actually might be selfish. You know, before I became a Christian, I threw tons of parties. You know, I had people over all the time. You know, I hugged trees. I was nice to people and all this. But, uh, but often I've had people over for dinner for very selfish reasons. <laughs> Uh, like not wanting to be lonely um, and ulterior motives uh, about uh, profession or love life, right? Uh, a friend of mine uh, recently was telling me about, uh, shared with me how difficult it is to run a house church. Do you know what a house church is? It's sort of like a church plant, but it's not, they don't have a building. They're in a home and they're gathering. And he said, you know, I thought it would be easier, but it's like the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Because it requires intention and sacrifice and flexibility and disappointment and all the things like that. And in the end, though, in the end, though, it can be a real blessing. It can be an amazing blessing. Um, on uh, social media in the past week or so, uh, here's another story. Um, with Hurricane Harvey happening, um, you know, of course, seeing all the, the stuff with the aftermath of Hur- Hurricane Harvey the most interesting thing to me is I have several friends who are ministers in Houston. I mean, like 10 or 12 in the city of Houston. And, and to see what was happening on the Facebook feed in terms of what they were saying um, was amazing. The church's response. I mean, people putting things on social media like, I know so-and-so who's stranded on the roof in this neighborhood. Does anyone live in that neighborhood and have a boat? Uh, through their, their church infrastructure, trying to, to help people out and uh, show love uh, for their neighbor. And I gotta say, in a world that uh, where people are often sort of scared of natural disasters like this, or what will happen if the zombie apocalypse hits? You know, will it be every man for himself, like lone ranger survival kind of thing? I need to start prepping and get my guns and hoard all this food, right? We live in a world like that. Um, I have to say that we saw the opposite especially among my, my friends who are Christian ministers, what I was seeing going on in their Facebook feeds, I saw nothing but a hospitable, loving outpour uh, in response uh, to what was happening and not looting and pillaging and plundering uh, in Houston or what you would expect, or at least what the sort of popular culture uh, gives you an impression will happen. So here's my question. Are we as a community loving and hospitable to each other? Or do we have a lot to learn still? Uh, and do we require heart conversion to get us there? But what about humbly blessing our enemies? And I want to say that this thought is uh, more readily paradoxical to us even than what I just said about love and hospitality. 
in a world of long, 16-year-long wars, in a world of mass shootings, in a, in a world that uh, has threats of new nuclear wars, in a nation with racial and social class tensions, and, uh, and all that sort of stuff, we see how much we naturally hate the idea of blessing our enemies. That this is, uh, this is, I mean, this is probably the most difficult word often in the Bible, to love one's enemy. Uh, and yet, it's not unrelated to showing love and hospitality in the family of God. Unless we learn to love our fellow Christians, we cannot love the world. And by the way, our enemies might be close to home. You know, it might just be your spouse. It might be your children. It might be your parents. I mean, the enemy can be that close, and how difficult it can be to love uh, those people often. Last week, uh, Doug mentioned uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, who uh, converted to Christianity against all odds in 1999, um, when actually her work, uh, her scholarly work, was to 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 uh, to fight the the religious right, and in her research, started reading the Bible and befriended her neighbor who was a pastor and eventually ended up converting to faith. Even though she was part of the LGBTQ community, which would have, with a lot of them disowned her for this. She had a partner um, who she's no longer with. All that was going on in her life. Against all those odds, she came to faith. And this is what she says about uh, that coming to faith in an interview that I read. Hospitality is the ground zero of evangelism. We are not going to evangelize our neighbors with a Bible verse or a bumper sticker telling them where we are going to church. That is just not going to happen. We are really not going to be a helpful witness if, if the best we can do is put political placards out in the front of the lawn letting people know where we stand. This is heart business. And what Pastor Ken Smith, that's her former neighbor, did for me is just become my friend. I had dinner at his house, and he and his wife had dinner at my house. He met my community. I met his community. We did book exchanges. We talked about sexuality and politics freely. It was really helpful, and we were neighbors. And the gay and lesbian community is a community given to hospitality as well. So not only was he helpful to me, but he allowed me to be helpful to them. When he and his wife were sick, he allowed me to bring over a pot of soup and a loaf of bread. There is a book that I'm highly recommending now called The Art of Neighboring. What would happen if we prayed for every person in every house that lives on our block? Not just by name, but if we knew some of the things they struggled with and we were able to perhaps intervene in some of those struggles. Nobody is going to argue against mercy work. She came to faith because Ken Smith was trained in the school of love and hospitality. And this overflowed into a sense of uh, peace and mercy that uh, allowed her to eventually have a platform for coming to faith. And as she says, this is heart business. And so my question about this list is, are we as a community prepared to humbly bless our enemies? Or have we still got a lot to learn? Do our hearts need conversion? In order to live in fellowship like uh, my friend in the house church or to demonstrate peace and mercy like Butterfield's neighbors did, it must flow naturally out of a converted heart. These are the fruits of justification, a lively faith. 
Remember I talked about Bilney and his uh, conversion with the marvelous comfort of the gospel? You know, he died as a martyr for his faith, burned at the stake. And I'm always amazed by people whose faith is so determined that they would uphold it even at the pain of death, risking his life to preach the gospel, not only for the sake of his brethren, but also to his enemies, so much so that they would kill him. This is the fruit of a man whose heart was converted by the comfortable words of the gospel. So I say all this to you to think about something with respect to the gospel and instruction in the Bible. Paul in Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ dwelt richly in Vilni. The word of Christ dwelt richly in uh, Rosaria Butterfield's neighbors. The word of Christ dwells richly in my friend who leads the house church. Um, And if the comfortable words of the gospel have not taken root for you as true, I'm going to say go ahead and ignore Romans chapter 12 through 16 right now. And instead, go back and read Mark and inwardly digest all that Romans chapters 1 through 11 have to say about the glory of God, the gravity of sin, and the grandeur of his grace. Read Romans chapter 1 through 11 over and over again. And if you're dead set and reassured in the gospel, then read chapters 12 through 16 as a disciple who wants to better love one's neighbor and enemy. Wherever you are, Hear these words of marvelous comfort one more time. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This saying is true and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is a propitiation for our sins. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.